The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary. Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Good evening. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your co-hosts on this 20th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'll soon be joined by co-host Kintia and our resident researcher, Annette Driscoll, who are both in California. Andrew Curry is taking a well-earned break with his family this week somewhere in Canada. Our show is entitled Upholding the Vaccine Choice. Synthetic immunization or vaccination is a sensitive topic we have touched on many times during the previous weeks. However, as the subject becomes increasingly controversial, it is essential we discuss this in more detail with an appropriate guest. We're delighted to be joined by Ted Kuntz, who is highly experienced and therefore very qualified to guide us through his perspective on vaccination. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. Kindly scroll down to tonight's white the other side of the news show banner. There you will see details for the show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references and selected research. As usual, there's a large selection of information to read, watch and to listen to. Most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. You will find the call-in number at the top of tonight's banner if you have a burning question or perhaps would like to share an important feat on the ground comment, please dial plus one if you're outside of North America, followed by 917-889-8802. You will come through our, to our sound engineer in the control tower, Keith Morgan, who will guide you onto our runway and then into the air. One gentle reminder, when you hear the show through your telephone, please switch off your radio, laptop, iPad, or other listening device. Otherwise, it may cause an unpleasant feedback loop. I'm speaking to you this morning from Southwest Turkey, and for many of you from the other side of the globe. However, we all remain connected through the grace of a still uncensored internetwork, and through a mutual desire to gain a better understanding of what is really going on in the world. While this may appear on the surface to be an independent news platform, our aim is to bring you far more depth 
than just a list of good, bad and ugly events. We seek the truth. And while sharing this with you, we may sometimes rustle a few feathers along the way. However, our intentions are noble. In time, we aim to greatly expand beyond the subjects we are currently focused on. In my opinion, we only have a few certain number of weeks to shine light onto those who may still believe a miracle vaccine will restore balance to their life. Unfortunately, I do not share this view. While I'm not against all vaccines, I am vehemently against harmful vaccines, of which there are many examples to be found. With just a little independent research, searching under the veneer of mainstream and social media, there are unfortunately too many ugly vaccine stories to be censored and ignored. It is clear to me that vaccines should be safe and remain a matter of choice. If we arrive at a point in the future where vaccines are made mandatory, as many governments have already built the foundations to enforce, I believe this will be a tipping point, a milestone in the devolution of freedom of humanity that may be very difficult to return from. There are currently circa 140 vaccines being developed around the world. A number of companies, many of which are connected to Bill Gates, they're racing to win the big bucks and to control the masses. But it's not just a matter of greed and domination. Many of these vaccines being rushed out are capable of altering our DNA and our lives forever. Marketing has historically been used to give vaccination a squeaky clean reputation. Research shows the reality could not be further than this. The fundamental science is still in question. The results, even for polio, appear to have been falsified. And the number of victims who have been damaged or have died continue to be hushed up without any liability to the vaccine producers. More on this later. In the last seven days, we have seen further remarkable events in the news, which include an aggressive arrest of a woman in Australia for not wearing a mask, despite her medical exemption. A countrywide lockdown in response to just a handful of suspected COVID cases in New Zealand. A series of powerful explosions that have taken out people and key infrastructure. And extreme weather in China leading to potential future global food shortages. Each one of these topics could fill an entire show. However, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, and activists who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from the mainstream media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Our show continues to act as a role of lighthouse to illuminate the rocks in the darkness and to sound off all passing ships until this persistent fog inevitably lifts. Good evening, Kintia. Good evening, Aneta. How was your week? Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here. This is Kintia, and I want to thank our wonderful audience for supporting us. We get lots of messages of encouragement, and I feel so grateful that we have the opportunity to support others who are looking to see beyond the mass hypnosis. 
I'd like to bring to our attention, again, the question of masks before we bring on our honored guest. It has been said that the debate around masks is <laughs> an ongoing one. And there are those that I love and hold dear who are highly intelligent, including in my family, that this debate still continues to rage. So there was a chart put up about the statistics of masks in Kansas, and this caused me to go searching. And I found a report from Dr. Daniel Erickson. And Keith, would you please play that? It's a three-minute soundbite that I think is worth hearing what he has to say. Uh, a couple things. Our early testing, we have eight medical centers throughout the state of California. Our early testing showed about 6.5% positivity. We've done 5,000 tests. To date, we've done 26,893 tests. These are your PCR nasal swabs. So we're, we're, we keep three labs busy. I don't know if you guys are doing this testing, but the fear has driven massive traffic. We had a June like I've never seen. I, I went to one of our centers and I thought it was the DMV. <laughs> Packed in, people around the building. I was like looking for free puppies and hot dogs. I thought, what, what, what is going on? No, it's fear. As we've heard from most of our esteemed people today, driving that. So um, our, our test to date right now, uh, most currently as of last week, were 14.9% positive PCR for 26,893 tests. Again, most people very, uh, very mild illness. And what I was noticing on the media is that they were saying cases, 5,000 new cases in Houston. Okay, a case is a person healthy that tested positive, the vast majority. But the public hears cases and thinks, oh my goodness, these are sick people. No, the vast majority, 99.8% of people get through this with little to no progressive or significant disease. But the cases every day, all the major media, the cases, the cases, the cases, that is not what we should be talking about. Hospitalizations, that's fair. D deaths that are appropriately coded on a death certificate, that's fair. And I, I stress appropriately coded. Our testing has been taking about seven to 10 days. And this has been the challenge where you're telling people to isolate for 10 to 14 and you're, they're getting their test results right at the end of their sort of quarantine. So I don't know what you guys think of quarantine. Uh, from the very beginning, I've questioned quarantine. The word quarantine, we quarantine those that have had a significant exposure to something. Those are at significant risk. And this is the first time uh, I've seen quarantining healthy. I don't know if you guys think that's normal. I find that very strange. Um, initially, my family, uh, when we first started out in March, we were wearing masks, we were buying Lysol, we were doing the whole thing, right? And uh, then after a couple of months, when I said, now wait a second, the cases I'm seeing are extremely mild. I called the CEOs from three different centers in Central California, I said, how are you guys doing? Slow. I said, like how slow? 40% occupancy, whoa. And they had all their, the tents are out, we're ready for bear, and squirrel shows up. We were ready, right? We were we were going for the big ones. We were all ready because we had heard, we'd watched China, we'd watched the different nations and said, let's get ready for this, which I agree with 100%. Let's get fully ready 
But then let's be realistic with the response. Who showed up? Most of the patients that were showing up for me were very mild illness. So at that point, we need to make sure. That's why I, I wanted to come out and sort of give reality to the situation on the ground and, and sort of help dispel some fear that people have had. So that was Dr. Daniel Erickson, and he's a doctor. He was uh, reporting at the Frontline Doctors Summit, and that was an excerpt from his report. I'd like to bring on John Francis, who's been a frequent guest on the other side of Midnight. He is a professor of statistics. John, are you with us? Yes, I am. Um, am I loud and clear? Okay, so everyone, if you want to see his items, you'd go to the other side of midnight.com. And tonight's show is upholding the vaccine choice. And in the fast links, you can click on John's items. Take it away, John. Okay, well, here we are in the middle of August, and we're three months away from the end of the traditional flu season. We're in summer, the weather is hot, plenty of sunlight, ultraviolet radiation and the flu is gone, yet we're being told the traditional flu, yet we're being told that we're having, we've been having for months now, a tremendous surge in cases of COVID-19, and uh, we have to reverse all the openings that were taking place. Um, mask, mask wearing is now being made mandatory in, in, in most states. Travel restrictions are in place, all because of a so-called surge in this coronavirus, which is acting contrary to a typical coronavirus, supposedly. And my contention looking at the statistics is this, is this assertion of a surge is being done through a statistical sleights of hand manipulations. As Dr. Erickson said, we need to distinguish between cases and actual illness. I contend that the reason we're seeing surges now in cases is that we're simply doing more testing. More testing is going to um, reveal anyone who's been uh, exposed to any virus or cold in, in this entire past flu season. So that's what we're seeing, more testing, more cases. It doesn't mean that there's necessarily that there's a surge of this tremendous deadly uh, new virus that's acting very different from every other coronavirus. That's the first thing that I want to make clear. Now, in terms of my items, uh, so all this surge is being prop propagated by uh, statistical manipulation, and we have a classic example here. Uh, my item one. Item one shows a graph that uh, from the Kansas Health Department um, presented by Dr. Lee Norman that supposedly uh, is trying to justify the need for mandatory masks. Um, in, in Kansas, uh, it's not mandatory and uh, almost all of the 105 counties uh, re rejected mandatory masks. Only 10 counties uh, went along with the order for mandatory masks. So he has a, he's presenting a graph here to compare the 10 counties where there are mandatory mask wearers with the uh, maybe 90, 95 counties where masks are optional. And so he's showing a graph here. 
And the graph is using one of the greatest, one of the uh, classic uh, means of statistical deception, which is labeling, different labeling of the vertical axes. And I, just, I recognized this immediately when I looked at it. And then I went online and found that numerous other people have looked at this graph in his presentation and came to the same conclusion. In my items two and three, I just selected two of the uh, other researchers which immediately detected this statistical um, deception. And the way the deception is occurring, you have the line in red that sort of starts up high on the left-hand side and then goes down. Those are the uh, counties, the 10 counties where masks were made mandatory. And it supposedly shows how this starts up high at 26 per 100,000, goes down to around 16. And it looks very dramatic. And then you have the other line, right, in, in, sort of in the middle, where the majority of the state of Kansas is not going along with the mask mandatory um, edict. And it looks like it's a fairly horizontal line. Actually, it starts at around 10 per 100,000, goes down to around 9. So I'm not going to get into the science behind masks, whether they're effective or not. That's a whole other subject. But I want to, first of all, uh, show you how statistics are used to make one dramatic, one case looking more dramatic than the other. If both of these uh, situations, mask and no mask, were scaled equally with the same vertical axis, it would not be quite a dramatic dis a difference. But let's just take what they're giving us uh, on face value. Uh, what's interesting is it actually contradicts the whole notion of there being a surge. And why do I say this? Because if you look at the counties, the 10 counties were massively mandatory. Yes, you see a drop in cases. But if you look at the, at the 95 counties where mask wearing is optional and presumably not being used as much, you still see a decrease from starting at 10 early in July to the end of the graph here in August down to nine. So in both cases, whether you wear a mask or you're not wearing a mask, we're seeing a decline in the number of cases. Now, it's a whole different discussion why, you know, why we have a higher case count uh, with the... Um, voluntary with the mandatory masks. That's a whole, that's a different story. But the main thing is we don't see from this, the very data that this doctor from Candace is presenting, we don't see data supporting the notion of a surge. If there was a real surge going on, you would see the counties that are not having mandatory masks rising in cases, right? But they don't they're flat to declining. So it's just a difference of how much they're declining, whether you use masks or not masks. And then we, what we have to look at though is uh, the difference may not be even that great because we have to look at how they're doing the testing. I, th I think if we can't trust the way the data is being presented, I don't see any reason to trust the way the data is being collected. So that's just, um, you know, uh, an example here of, of manipulation of data to support the notion of a surge, which is going to increase more lockdowns, more quarantines, more mask wearing, stopping schools from opening, canceling all sporting events. And where is the data for that? As Dr. Erickson says, the data is not 
it's not there. More cases does not mean more infection. It does not mean there's more of a surge. And, um, and the data here presenting masks versus no masks, even that rejects the notion of a surge, let alone any discussion about the um, usefulness of masks. So, you know, that's a very quick 10-minute statistical discussion. And I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to do this because what I see is most people, unfortunately, in our society do not have a proper math education, let alone in statistics. And so they very easily will fall for a chart like this. And I call this chart a visual deception. It was meant to uh, like a, be a visual soundbite that people will look at and will say, oh, my God, masks are so effective Oh my God, not using a math mask is going to open you to all kinds of um, dire consequences. And that's not what this necessarily what this what this graph is showing in the data. So thank you very much um, um, for thank giving you, me this John. opportunity. Yes. Thank you for bringing your expertise to this question. So with that, I'd like to turn our direction to our guest tonight, Ted Kuntz. Ted Kuntz is a father, a medical choice activist, and an educator. Kuntz's journey to examine the claims of the vaccine industry began after his son Joshua was neurologically injured by the DPT shot in 1984. Kuntz began a journey to understand what happened to his son. This journey revealed that the vaccine industry has been systematically and intentionally dishonest with parents on the safety, effectiveness, and necessity of vaccinations. Kunz believes the organized and pervasive effort to deny citizens their right to medical decision-making for themselves and their children is the greatest threat to humanity today. If we lose the capacity for choice, over what is injected into oneself and our children, then we are no longer free citizens. Kuntz is the author of Dare to Question, One Parent to Another, Peace Begins with Me, An Inspirational Journey to End Suffering and Restore Joy, and How Can I Wake Up When I Don't Know I'm Asleep, Selected Essays by Ted Kuntz. His websites are vaccinechoicecanada.com and daretoquestionvaccination.com. Ted, welcome to the other side of the news. Hi, Kinthea and Timothy. Thank you for inviting me. I'm absolutely del delighted to be with uh, people that are interested in, in, in truth and in asking questions so that uh, we wake up and uh, do our own thinking. So, uh, a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. As a parent, I can't imagine anything more painful than to see my child suffering, injured needlessly. I can imagine that you must have had terrible thoughts wondering what you could have done to have changed that, how you could have been more aware and made another choice, and how that must have plagued you. 
Would you share with us how you made this journey from that painful place to being an activist who's making a difference in the lives of so many children now and those to come? Well, I, I didn't plan to be an activist, uh, for sure. I, I, I was a, a parent who, I have to admit, uh, in hindsight, that I was not a responsible parent. I, I didn't do my research. I didn't do my homework around vaccinations. I simply took the word of our family physician when he said, you should vaccinate your child. Uh, my wife took him in, uh, and wh what we say is that the child that we took to the doctor, we got a different child coming home from the doctor. Josh was uh, severely neurologically injured by his DPT shot. Uh, he developed an uncontrolled seizure disorder. He had that uh, seizure disorder his entire life, uh, passed away in 2017 at the age of 32 from a seizure. Uh, it, it was heartbreaking. Um, you, you know, first of all, you, you lose your son. There, there's a death that happens. The, the beautiful, healthy child that we had at the beginning was gone. Uh, at one point, Josh was seizing 12 to 15 times a day, and each seizure was 15 to 20 minutes long. So we were living re really from seizure to seizure to seizure, uh, and it was um, it was painful to, to feel absolutely powerless to, to stop my son from seizuring and, and to reclaim his health. Uh, I could see that. Uh, you know, it seemed pretty obvious to me that the vaccine is what was responsible for that sudden decline in his health. Uh, the medical system absolutely denied that. Uh, they dismissed it. They were not interested in researching it. You know, I asked what I thought were reasonable questions like, uh, you know, surely it makes sense to uh, review the lot number of the product, see if other people or other children that received that same lot number were also affected, you know, uh, no interest at all in, in that. They, they said it would be a waste of their time and resources. So I decided to do my own homework. And what I discovered is that vaccines are not nearly as safe nor nearly as effective as we have been told to believe. And it, and it really is, uh, I think it's uh, one of the most destructive, damaging scams uh, in humanity. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's the foundation of our medical system suggests that our medical system is really not based on solid evidence-based medicine. It's not personalized medicine. It, it is, uh, you know, there's an agenda here. And, and I think one of the agendas is, is clearly greed, uh, amongst others. Well, and I can imagine the distress when you see that the companies take no liability. They, you know, make no effort to address the question well, and I, I, I think that was something that surprised me and surprises most people when I talk about this, is they, they're shocked to discover that the vaccine injury is the only industry and vaccines are the only product where the manufacturer is not legally liable for injury or death caused by their products. And that, that was granted to, uh, to, to the vaccine industry uh, by Congress in the United States in 1986. And I would suggest that that was uh, an incredible turning point uh, in, in, uh, in medicine because what it did is it allowed the vaccine industry to begin to, to sell products uh, that they had no liability for. And so that there's no incentive on their part to, to ensure that their products are as safe as possible. 
Uh, instead, what they've done is they've used their resources from selling their products to capture, in my view, capture politicians and, and the medical or the regulatory agencies such that they have increased the mandates for vaccination uh, all throughout the world. And so what you have is a product that's mandated. They've taken away the right of parents to medical choice. And then the, the industry is, is not liable in any way for the harms that they cause. I, I, I think that's incredibly uh, not only unethical and immoral, but it's destructive. And, and the results would show that our children today are sicker than any previous generation. I imagine that's one of the topics you handle in your book, Dare to Question One Parent to Another. Well, exactly. And so what I, you know, I was trying to reach uh, parents that are open to thinking about this medical decision. I mean, there are those that are so captured, doesn't matter what you say, they can't hear you. And I didn't want to preach to the choir, the people that already have done their homework and, and done their research. And so my, my purpose was to, to write a book that I thought would begin to introduce them to the topic. And I thought if I asked questions and provided some answers, that that might begin to open them up to uh, thinking for themselves. So that was what the goal was. That sounds parallel to your other book, How Can I Wake Up When I Don't Know I'm <laughs> Asleep? I love that title. Well, uh, I have to say that that title came to me at some point, and I knew the title of my next book. I just didn't know what was going to be in it. And it took a number of years before the content uh, finally filled out that book. But it's true is that I, I think uh, humanity, for the most part, is asleep, and it, it's time that we woke up. And I think that's what this whole COVID thing is going to do is I think it's, it's challenging humanity to become adults, to wake up. It certainly is. We're coming up on the break, and may, perhaps we can address your other book, Peace Begins With Me, after the break. You're listening to The Other Side of the News, and our guest tonight is Ted Kuntz, uh, co-host Timothy Saunders, Annette Driscoll, and myself, Kinthea, and we also had John Francis. We'll return shortly. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The Other Side of the News is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way with clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Thank you. 
And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. This is Annetta. I'm speaking to you from California, and we have guests from everywhere tonight, just all kinds of places. So, um, but our our special guest this evening is Ted Coons, and he has been talking to us about his journey with the vaccine issue and his own uh, personal story involving his son. Uh, I have a personal story too. And I'm not really going to go into it, but it, it greatly affected me. But it was with vaccines with one of my cats. And um, it involved, it was similar in that my cat came home, a completely different uh, cat, literally. And it froze up all her joints and she had seizures the rest of her life. And I believe her life was shortened by it. So in many ways, similar. Um, and and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion there. Uh, but I, I'd really like to um, talk to Ted about um, peace begins with me because I could go on and on and I will <laughs> about the science behind this but I'd like to, to kind of go into the um, to the, the attitude uh, the, the thought process so Ted what do you what would you say to that idea well it, it was certainly a, a journey that I needed to figure out I after my son was injured I was incredibly angry I was resentful I have to say I was in despair, um, and I, I was, uh, I have to say I was stuck there. And the ironic thing is that I'm a psychotherapist. Uh, I, I worked in private practice for 30 years, and so I would go to work every day to assist others to move through their emotional trauma and uh, live uh, a more joyful or successful life. And yet I couldn't get past uh, my anger and my resentment about the loss of the health of my son. And then I had this, uh, an experience that I'd like to share with you that was really, uh, I would say, transformative in my life. Um, Josh and I had this kind of father-son ritual that when I came home from work, I would drive up the driveway and park my car uh, in, in the carport that we had at the back of the property. And as the car went up alongside of the house, Josh would hear the sound of my car and he would know that his dad was home. So he would run to the window to watch me uh, as I got out of the car, and he was happy to see me, and he would always yell, hi, Dad. But, but as Josh got sicker and sicker, the number of times he was at the window got fewer and fewer because he was spending more and more time in seizure. On this particular day, I drove up the driveway, and I parked my car, and I looked to the window uh, as I always did, and he was there. I could still see his face in my mind's eye, and he was grinning from ear to ear. And he yelled, hi, Dad. And I said, hi, Josh. But I, I did something different that day. I just stood there and looked at him. And it's like I wanted to absorb every moment of seeing my son there and his joy in seeing me. And I had gratitude that he was well enough that day to see me. But as I stood there looking at Josh, something happened. And what I heard was a voice. 
and the voice was as loud if it was spoken. And what I heard was actually a question. And the question I heard was, when your son looks through the glass at you, what does he see? And so I thought about that. What does he see when he looks at me? And the answer seemed to be he sees a father who's angry. He sees a father who's afraid. He sees a father who's in despair. He sees a father who's in resentment. And he sees a father who's rejecting his own son because the truth was, I didn't want this disabled child. I wanted the other son that I had before all of this began. And when I came to that moment of clarity, I decided that my son deserved better than that from his dad. And so I made a commitment that day to Josh. And I said, Josh, I'm going to make peace with your medical condition. And I'm going to learn to fall in love with the son that I have, not the son that I don't have. And it really began a very deep, I would say, spiritual journey for me of how do I make peace with something that I don't want or uh, resisted. And I had to learn to accept that I have a son who ended up having the mental capacity of a two-year-old that required 24-hour care for the rest of his life, that every time he seized, I thought he would die in front of my eyes, but I had to learn to make peace with that. And I, and I did. And the book really captures the journey that I went on of how I came to move through my anger and my fear and my despair and hold a higher vibration because I felt like if I was going to be of service to my family and to my community, I needed to be, come from a place of compassion and love and acceptance and forgiveness. And so I, it was my, the book is my journey to get there. Wow, that's... Uh... Such a story. <laughs> and I, is that the book, Peace Begins With Me? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes. So, so I wanted to, I mean, I wanted you to talk about that part. Um, I mean, I, I know, I didn't know you had that exact story, but you did write a book with the title, Peace Begins With Me. And, and so what I was really um, thinking about as I read that, I thought, well, with our listeners and what we have going on, um, we know that the virus really should be renamed fear. Um, yes. It's not that we don't have a virus, but what we have going on around it and the whole situation that's turned our world upside down, that virus is named fear. And it's, it's clearly being, um, you know, the propaganda is clearly propelling it forward. I mean, I've, I've said, not so jokingly to, to many people, you know, if, if everyone would just shut off their TVs, um, the virus would die right now. And I, I believe it's true. And I know, you know, on a, on a scientific basis that when we have this horrible fear and these terrible experiences emotionally and uh, mentally and all that, we, we do shut down our immune system and we don't cause our bodies to function optimally. But there's also this, this more spiritual aspect of our, our beingness and our fears and our, our health what would you say um, in relationship to people at this point, uh, being what you've gone through and, and all of the, the different, you know, you've had a very different viewpoint than a lot of people have experienced? Well, first of all, let me just say that I absolutely agree with you is that the, the real epidemic that we're facing is fear. And it's it's been it's manipulated fear. It's coerced. It's intentional. Um uh, you know, there there's a very sophisticated programming that's happening, and most of it is through the mainstream media. And I, I too, have said the same advice. Turn off your TV set. 
uh, engage your community. If you didn't know, uh, if, the, if you weren't listening to the TV, would you be afraid? Um, we have started putting out some flyers uh, from Vaccine Choice Canada and basically says, uh, you know, if you knew the real risk of dying from COVID, would you be afraid? And we, we give the facts. Uh, we also have a similar one that says, if you knew the science behind masking, would you still wear a mask? And, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is educate people. But when they're captured by fear, as you know, is it, 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 it invokes a trauma response. It shuts down, uh, you know, the higher parts of our brain. People are operating out of uh, fight or flight. They're operating out of su survival mode. And so they're not able to think well. And you know, it, it, as long as people are acting out of free, fear, we're going to we're going to overreact and we're going to be very destructive in our ways. And and, and my concern is that uh, the the epidemic of fear is is, uh, in my view, it's quite intentional. It's uh, uh, it is being done on purpose as a mechanism of, of capture and control. And it's working for many people. Um, I've wondered why I wasn't captured by this whole fear paradigm. And uh, I, I uh, disconnected from, from TV more than 20 years ago. I, uh, I, I, I haven't had a TV in my house for over 20 years. And it seems to me that the people that are most afraid, if I say, do you watch mainstream news? Uh, when they say yes, I, I know why they're so afraid. And so if we could get people to pay attention to their own experience as opposed to the manipulated story that they've been told, you know, John was absolutely right about the manipulate st statistical manipulation that's out there amongst other kinds of manipulations. Um, in, in my uh, training uh, for psychology, uh, I remember working uh, or meeting a, a psychologist and, and I asked her what she did and she said that her work was embedding messages in, in television, in program, uh, programs in television. And I said, are you talking about kind of uh, eat more popcorn kind of messaging? And she said, no, it's much more devious than that. And she said, and this was 20 years ago, and she said it is so sophisticated that they, the, the television really is an instrument of programming. And, and it's right in our faces. They call it programs. Um, but I, I think we've got a, a global society that is traumatized, and our medical system either is also traumatized or they're complicit in, in the deception. Yeah, I've I've talked about that actually, and and all of us here on on this show, we've we've we have many off-air discussions, as you can imagine. And that question exactly has come up about well, why why did I not feel that way, or why did we not feel that way? Uh, I have the experience of not having uh, a, a television for the last forty years by choice, um, mm -hmm. and and I I don't believe I've missed out on much, um, and uh, so. You know that that's part of it, and and the whole thing about the whole idea how science has been completely thrown out the window for what I'm not sure. I mean, like this mask issue, it keeps coming up because it is so. It's not scientifically based whatsoever. The scientific data actually unequivocally shows it to be not only ineffective but quite uh, quite possibly for many people dangerous. Yes, and I believe it's dangerous in that it just. It, it it creates, I mean, even when I, I'm not fearful of the virus whatsoever, but when I feel like I'm suffocating, I actually do feel more fear and I feel more anger. And I know that shuts down my immune system and I know it makes my amygdala more active and my frontal cortex less active. So I have, you know, less ability to make choices and I make jokes about people driving with these masks on, but it's not very funny to see what they're doing. 
No. So, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're dealing with so much of that right now. And um, I'm wondering, you know, like, have you had success when you're sending, when you're, you're handing out these, um, and I'd love to see these, these uh, little pamphlets. I would love to get a hold of those. Like the facts about masking, if you knew the truth about masking, would you still be wearing one? Um, how are people responding to that? You know, what's really interesting is that uh, uh, it's like the world has become very polarized and there are those that are incredibly resistant to it. I mean, I, I get all kinds of hate mail uh, saying that I'm dangerous, I'm stupid, I'm killing people. And then I get uh, equally as uh, beautiful messages on the other side saying, thank you for helping to save the world. Um, you know, I, I've got a vaccine uh, free child because of you. Uh, your story has caused me to begin to think for myself. And so what I know is that there are some people that are so captured, we're not going to reach them. Um, and, and, and then there are others that um, they're not so far gone. Uh, and, and when you give them information, and you do it in a loving way, in a compassionate way, in a respectful way, they can hear you. What I've learned is that we can't outfear um, you know, this uh, cabal that's uh, running the show. Uh, if we try to make people afraid of masks, for example, or afraid of vaccines, they'll lock down and they'll, they'll still not think for themselves. And so the challenge is, how do I introduce information but not activate their, their fear in a way that they're still not thinking for themselves? Um, you know, that, and that's the challenge. And, I, you know, I, I, again, I go back to what I've said before, is that I, I think the human species is actually not a very mature species. Uh, and in my own assessment is, is that humanity is operating in, in, at the developmental stage of early adolescence. And we have to grow, we have to mature, we have to learn to claim our authority as human beings. We have to begin to think for ourselves, take responsibility for our thinking and for our decision making. And I think that this uh, COVID crisis is pushing humanity to the place of some kind of a transformation. And could, could it also be its final destruction? It could be, uh, but I'm, I feel encouraged that uh, in some ways, the more uh, tyrannical they get, and when I look at what's happening in Australia, I, I saw that video that was mentioned, what's happening in New Zealand. I, I mean, I, I think most reasonable people uh, come to a place of saying, this is not reasonable. And, and once you start to question, once, once there's a crack, uh, you, you, it opens up the possibilities of questioning all kinds of things. But I think the challenge is, is that the lie is so big that uh, it, it's, it's hard for us to uh, uh, open up to that lie because it, it, what it does is if it says that you can't trust your government, you can't trust your medical industry, you can't trust your mainstream media, you know, the loss of trust, um, at least initially, it causes a crisis. And we, we, it's like we're holding on or lots of people are holding on in the face of the declining trust and the evidence that they shouldn't be trusted. So, um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll move through this. Uh, we have to. Well, yeah. I certainly agree with you, Ted, about the transformation of humanity coming about through this because this lockdown time also is providing time for people to turn inward to reevaluate the choices they've been making in their lives and like you said when they see things that just don't add up 
it's going to put them in the position where they have to question. So I, I see a bright future for us. I see good coming out of this challenge, just like it did for you personally as a, as a being when you heard that voice speaking to you, who is your son seeing back. It was a means for transformation for you personally. And I, I see this as a mirror for transformation for humanity. Well, and, and, and personally, you're absolutely right, is that it, that suffering uh, is what cracked me open to begin to learn the things that I learned. And I also saw in my uh, psychology practice, my uh, psychotherapy practice, is that people don't show up at my office and saying, Ted, I'm really doing well, but I, you know, I, I want to become <laughs> even more conscious or, or learn even more. They come in because they're suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that the, the, the suffering is a gift. And, mm. and I would call it the gateway to wisdom. And so when they come in, initially they're captured by their suffering and they'll spend the first hour just telling me how bad things are. But at some point I often will invite the, or ask the question, what might be the gift from this suffering? And initially they just like, you know, it kind of throws them off because, it, you know, their perception is this is all bad and no good. But it's almost like that grain of sand, you know, in the that creates the oyster is that they've heard the question and eventually most will come back to me at some point and saying, I really didn't like it when you asked that question about what was the, the, the good in this, but I can see now that I'm stronger or wiser or I'm standing up for myself or I'm, I'm claiming my authority or. And so I, I think that same principle holds true for all of humanity. And so when I look at the amount of suffering, I think we're going to go through some really uh, intense suffering in the next six months. I, 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 I think things will get much worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my hope is, is that there's enough of us that are speaking truth in a loving and compassionate way. Margaret Wheatley, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she talks about how we need to be islands of sanity amidst the insanity. And that this is a time for warriors to come forward who will defend truth, who will defend our rights and freedoms. And I think that's who all of you are. And I feel very privileged to be uh, a warrior for this cause. And uh, But I also got to a place of not being afraid any longer. When I finally, I, I faced the fact that my son could die. You know, he was uh, seizing for four days straight. It was what's called a status seizure. seizure. And uh, I remember holding him while we were in Children's Hospital, and I just, I said to him, Josh, if you need to go, um, you can go. And it was like, that was my moment of when I uh, was able to make peace with, if he needs to go, he needs to go. Mm. And fortunately, he lived another 25 years. But um, I think what that did is it broke the fear, and I learned how to be in a place of love, even in the midst of a seizure. Um, and say, how can I hold him? How can I, um, how can I love him even while he's seizing? So, for me, those were transformative moments, and I, 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 I'm hopeful that this crisis will transform humanity. But, but in the short term, uh, it's it's ugly, and I just want to make sure that I don't contribute to the ugliness by adding to fear, and that I try to be an example of. Uh, loving compassion. So when I see people who are masked and afraid, I say, I'm sorry you're afraid. Uh, I'd love to give you some information if, if you're open to it. And sometimes they are and sometimes they're not.
Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that comes into my awareness as you're speaking is what it was for your son. And I've heard it said, and I truly believe in my heart, that there are many kinds of warriors and that sometimes it's our own children that come into this life to help wake their parents up. That, you know, we are not finite beings, we're eternal beings. And this was an experience for your son as well. It was it was just as much an experience as the 3,000 souls that left with 911 to, to be a catalyst for, for change. And painful as it is, I, I just don't even want to imagine losing my son. At the same time, I, I don't feel that when we lose a loved one, especially a child, that it was without good purpose, that it served something in the greater good, something that at that moment we're not able to recognize, but something that's shaping shaping the soul. You know, Cahil Gibran talked about to fill your well of joy, you have to de- dig deep into your sorrow. Yeah. And it seems to me that each soul that comes here for its experience is gathering and contributing experiences that will deepen that well so we can hold a greater sense of awareness and peace and and go through that fire, walking that fire. You walked the fire and he walked the fire with you. And you came out victorious. And, you yeah. know, that's been the... Um, the energy, the drive that's pushed you to help free so many other unborn children from future vaccinations. Yes. Yeah. Well, I absolutely agree with you. One of the other transformative moments in my life was at one point when I was in my despair, I went to see a psychic and she said I could come with questions. And I really only had one question at that point. And the question I asked was, will my son live? And she said, have no fear, the son will outlive the father as he should. And that just, that thought that Josh was going to survive just brought this joy to my heart. And I said, well, if he's going to live, what will he be when he grows up? And again, there was this pause. And then she said, your son will be what he already is. And that is a teacher. Mm. And, and at the moment, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because I said he, he had regressed, uh, he had lost most of his language. Uh, you know, this this child that could walk and talk and tie his shoes and all those things lost all of that. And I couldn't understand how he could be a teacher, at least in the way that I thought a teacher was. But over the years, I've come to appreciate that Josh was my greatest teacher. And even when he physically passed, I have no doubt that his story, his contribution will outlive the father. Um you know, uh, it, it's interesting in my world that, oh, you're Josh's dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm, I feel absolutely grateful and privileged that I had him as my teacher. And I feel his essence and presence in this walk with you ongoingly. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, they, we talked about, uh, you, you told a beautiful story, at least I call it a story, about how we... We say, you know, we're, this is for the greater good or, you know, my son is a teacher. And, you know, the Hopi uh, native people have uh, an expression that I like. It says, he who tells the stories rules the world. 
And so what I would ask people is, are you your storyteller or are you letting somebody else tell the stories to you? Mm. And I would ask parents, I would say, who's who's um, the storyteller to your children? And what I recognize is that in previous generations before all of this technology is that, you know, a parent or a grandparent would sit down with a child and tell them a story. And embedded within the story would be the, the values or the, the messages or the skills or the knowledge they wanted that child to acquire. And then I say to them, who's the primary storyteller of children today? Well, the answer is TV. Yes. And what we've done is we've turned the responsibility of storytelling to people that we don't know and in most cases don't even share our values. And so I invite people to reclaim the authority and the responsibility of storytelling. And so in this moment of crisis, what story will I tell myself? Who will I choose to be in the story of COVID-19. And I try very hard to monitor my vibrational frequency and hold it at a high vibration. And uh, there was a David Hawking's that developed what's called the map of consciousness where he calibrated emotion on a scale between zero and a thousand. And he would say anything be below uh, 200 on that scale is destructive. And so our goal is to uh, hold the vibration above 200, which is, you know, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, love, peace, joy. Whereas below 200 is anger, resentment, and shame, guilt, fear. Um, and unfortunately, much of our mainstream media evokes uh, a very low vibration. I, I totally agree with you, and I'm. I'm actually like thinking about this idea of the storyteller and how our families today, some of them don't even know who their grandparents were and what their stories are. It's, we really have surrendered our, our global reality to people with covert ideas like the um, woman that you spoke of who was intentionally programming, she said devious things into the shows. Yes. And we really do need to wake up. I, I, I myself, I think back to when my children were growing up and I did try to do my best, but I could have done better. I realized I wish I could have been more awake. And so I appreciate you bringing up that point. It's so important. In our audience, I would say our audience is a very curious and out-of-the-box audience looking for insights and in how to live a better life. And we need to reclaim our stories, our truth. Well, and I, that's what I love about when I listen to the introduction to your program. And, you know, you talk about thought-provoking questions and, and you're committed to truth and and, and, and you're wanting people to begin to discern um, their own truth. I mean, to me, to be encouraged to do that is fabulous. Uh, most times what we get is this is the truth. And if you don't accept it, then, then you're uh, either stupid or, you know, you're shamed in some kind of a way. And so mm -hmm. to me, what you're doing is you're, you're helping humanity to, to claim its authority and its and sovereignty. Oh, I apologize. We, we are at the top of the break. So if you could hold that thought, you're listening to The Other Side of the News. And our guest tonight is Ted Kuntz. The show is called Upholding the Vaccine Choice. 
And when we return, Ted will continue about sovereignty. midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. is uh, an incredible conversation. I, I wanted to ask so many questions, but the flow was going so well with you guys, I didn't want to break it either. Uh, without wishing to go back too many steps, I picked up on a number of things you were talking about. And uh, one of the things you, you mentioned earlier was that when you uh, were, were a father, when you became a father, going back in time, you said you did not you realize you came to a realization that you were not particularly responsible because you, you did not researched vaccines and so on and so on. And I just wanted to share the same moment. I'm sure that's a very similar story with many people. Uh, it, and that is that, you know, I, I have two sons. They were both born in uh, private hospitals in Turkey. The system everything was perfect it, it's very clean it's the latest machinery everybody was so polite everything everybody was well trained in a, it was it was flawless except for the fact that it was a very new situation for me i had not been a father before so you know at the, the moment of joy when i was handed uh, my my first son his little bundle in in, in my arms uh you know I, I was so focused on that moment that when this you know, very official looking 
I don't know what she was, a, not a midwife, but I, I guess a, a nurse. I'm not sure of her technical position. When she sort of gave me the look to say, well, okay, now it's time for me to take your son away and prepare him or, or to you know, get him ready. Uh, I didn't question it because I thought that's what, that's what happens. That's, that's the normal thing. That's the normal process. And I was, at that particular time, I was allowed to stay in this, this room, which is like a room, um, a preparation room, I guess. And you know, the, my son was dressed, the nurse dressed him and put his first uh, costume on and so on. Uh, except for the, the bit I'm coming to is, is this dirty great needle came out and his first shots of vaccination. And this, this needle was huge. It was not only long, it was also like a very, actually quite a large diameter. And I thought, what the hell is this going to be? What is this? But again, I didn't question it because I hadn't been in that situation before. And I assumed everything was, you know, acceptable, it's normal. But the second, of course, this needle went to my son's shoulder or arm, uh, I failed exactly where it was. I think it's somewhere in the back of his arm. You know, this scream came out and it's sort of, you know, this serene moment was broken by this sort of second of terror and, and you know, mistrust. I mean, that, that surely, I'm not a psychologist, but surely that one moment must have, to some extent, defined the momentum of my son starting his life, not to mention the chemical concoction mm-hmm. going into his blood, into his, his, his you know, into his tissue. So when you said you were not responsible, I too feel I was not responsible. But at the same time, how would we know unless we'd been through that before? Just just to, without going into too many details, but when my second son was born a couple of years later, the I was actually not allowed to be in that preparation room. They actually told me to get out. It was a different hospital, a different crew, obviously. So I don't know what changed or if anything changed or perhaps they, they kind of forgot that I was hanging around and monitoring to watch this first vaccination of my first son. But when it came to my second son, I was actually ushered out and said, uh, can you go out there and wait up there because you're not, you're not permitted to be in here. So does this ring any bells with you? What I'm trying to get to is, is the protocol, the system is almost, in my opinion, not educating us. It, it's not making this information uh, freely shared with, with the public until the point is just too late. And this this sort of trust, client, I know, client, patient, doctor, trust, we've all been brought up with is something which you go on trusting until there's a reason not to trust. So, you know, the system, in my opinion, from the root upwards is 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 very pro-vaccine. What would you say to that? Timothy, you're absolutely right. And what you've described is an experience that happens probably millions of times uh, daily on this planet. Uh, the, the system purports uh, to have informed consent. And with most other medical procedures, there's pretty good informed consent. You know, when my mother was 86 and trying to decide whether to do a open heart surgery, they very frankly sat down with her, told her what the risk of survival was, told her what they would do, how long it would take to recover, if she recovered. And, and, and to me, they were very frank with her. 
I compare that experience to the experience that you describe, which is not unlike mine, is that there was no opportunity for discussion, debate. There was no sharing of information. There was no consent uh, desired by those uh, giving the vaccination. If anything, they, you know, it's being done without your knowledge. And to me, this is a huge violation that happens uh, with vaccination. Is and our medical system, which should know better, which claims to have medical ethics uh, and upholds the right to informed consent and first do no harm, Hippocratic oath, and all these things. It, it, it to me, at least with vaccinations, when it comes to that, it's a lie. Uh, our, our children uh, and, and and as adults too, we're being violated with a, a medical product that's toxic, that has no legal liability, there's no accountability. And what I've learned is, is that even if you say to the doctors, I want to see the product information insert, the monograph, and I want to read it before I consent, they'll do everything they can from discourage you from reading that document. Because if you read the document, you wouldn't vaccinate your child. Ted, this, this, yeah, this is something I, I do definitely want to get into is because can we talk about before we go into what is actually in a vaccine, obviously each vaccine is different, but can we just talk a little bit about the actual basic science about the theory behind how vaccination works? Because, you know, many people even mix up the terms between immunization and vaccination. Uh, in my in my opinion, vaccination uh, is is a is a, a it's tricking the immune system into believing uh, it should create, for example, antibodies to resist uh, a virus or, or whatever vaccination is, is there to protect you from. But the immune system is far more complex, far more uh, knowledgeable, uh, has access to you know, the rest of the control of your body. So why on earth are we even contemplating putting this, this, you know, in some cases, disgusting, rotting, uh, I, I would suggest metallic, in, toxic in, chemicals? In every case, it's disgusting, it's rotten, it's toxic, it's foreign to the human body. Uh, uh, you know, the, the whole, and, and you're absolutely right, first of all, is that oftentimes they'll use the word immunization when there's no guarantee that you've developed any immunity at all. Uh, the correct word is vaccination. Uh, you know, it's the injection of, of, of a, a chemical product, a medical product. And when you begin to realize what's in these things, it, it's uh, it's based upon, I would suggest, a story. Um, and the, the evidence is not there to su support that that children who are vaccinated are healthier than unvaccinated. And they don't measure health. They measure wh whether your body produces antibodies. And if it produces antibodies for a, at least a, a, a period of time, they say, oh, it's effective. To me, that's a false and dishonest and deceptive measure of effectiveness. They should be measuring the health of our children. Are, are, are vaccinated children healthier than unvaccinated children? And the evidence is very clear when it's been done. The, the industry itself refuses to conduct vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies. But those that have conducted them uh, there's clear evidence that uh, unvaccinated children are healthier. Um, 
wouldn't that be the very first thing you'd do? I mean, even if you buy a car, you would with an improved carburetor or, or injection system, the, one of the first things you would do is to say, well, let's compare it with the old one and see, you know, how it performs. I mean, isn't that... But, you know, what people don't understand is that vaccines are treated completely different than every other pharmaceutical product. They're called biologics, and because of that, they don't have to follow the same guidelines the same uh, testing patterns, uh, requirements as any other pharmaceutical drug. And so, for example, you know, with a, a pharmaceutical drug like uh, Viagra, that was tested, they, they had the Viagra pill, they compared it to a sugar pill, an inert substance. Uh, it was a controlled study, uh, randomized, and it was conducted over a 10-year period before they decided that the product was safe enough and effective enough to put on the market. With vaccines, first of all, none of the vaccines on the childhood schedule have been tested against an inert placebo, not one of them. They're tested against other vaccine products or other vaccine ingredients like aluminum. So we don't actually have a, a, a true test of safety because they're not, they don't have to. The second thing is, do you have any idea how long the pre-licensing safety period is for childhood vaccines? Do you, do you want to make a guess, Tim? Well, what I can say is I hear people are, you know, what is it, Operation Warp Drive or something like this they're doing at the moment where they're trying to say that, you know, they're going to make this come out to the public uh, faster than any time before. So I guess it's it, it should normally be more than seven, eight, nine months. I guess, it, is it a year? I have, I have no idea. I'm going to say it's non-existent. <laughs> oh. So the period of pre-licensing safety testing for childhood vaccines, so the ones that are on the childhood schedule, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, hepatitis B, you know, the ones that uh, we're probably all familiar with, it's between 48 hours and four weeks. The longest is four weeks. Unbelievable. That's like none. That's like none. And so any long-term impact that's on the neurological system, the immunological system, you're not going to see that in four weeks or most of the of the vaccines, the testing period is between three and five days. Oh. And so if the child dies on day six, that's not counted. Ted, Wonderful. may I ask a question on the labeling? I don't know if this is the case with humans, but it wouldn't, sur it wouldn't surprise me. I know on um, animal vaccines, for example, rabies, they have, for dog rabies shots, they have a one-year vaccine, they have a three-year vaccine. If they have a surplus of the three-year vaccine, they can relabel it for a one-year vaccine. So literally, people are taking their dogs in every year, getting what they think is a one-year vaccine, and they're getting a three-year dose, which just absolutely kills the immune system. Um, it's known to cause cancer and everything else. So is this the case with humans, or do you know? Well, there's, I haven't heard of that kind of an example, but what I can tell you is, for example, with, with influenza vaccines, you can have uh, a, a, a vaccine that is a, a one-vial, one-shot vaccine, so it only produces one, one vaccination, but most of the vaccines that are delivered around the world are in, in a 10-dose vial, which means they stick the needle in nine or 10 times uh, into the one vial. Now they do that to save a couple of pennies per shot. But the consequence of that is that they put mercury into thimerosal into the vial to cut down on bacterial growth. And do you have any idea of how much mercury is in those vials? 
way way past any safe limit. <laughs> so l l let me give you some numbers. Is that uh, in in the United States, if you've got two parts per billion of mercury in drinking water, it's considered to be uh, uh, not drinkable. In Canada, the, the the threshold is one part per billion. If you've got 200 parts per billion, it's considered to be toxic waste and it has to be treated as a toxic substance. The pediatric dose of the influenza vaccine has got 25,000 parts per billion and the adult dose is 50,000 parts per billion. <laughs> there is no evidence that injecting mercury is safe. The same with aluminum. Both aluminum and mercury have been grandfathered in they've been assumed, generally assumed to be safe. So we're injecting substances that are known neurotoxic and we're giving it to our infants, uh, not only on the first day of life with a hepatitis B vaccine, but we're giving it to pregnant women now, giving them sometimes two and three influenza shots during the course of a pregnancy. Like to me, if this isn't criminal, I don't know what is. Oh, I do know that on the CDC site, and I haven't looked recently, they may have taken it down, which they're prone to do. But there was a study at one point on the CDC site that's, that said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, uh, three influenza shots were, is for sure you're going to have all because the aluminum dosage was so high that it was, it was giving enough toxic aluminum to like do your brain in with three, three flu shots. And when I say that to people, they, they are completely floored. And it's like, well, you better look yourself. I mean, it's coming straight from the horse's mouth, you know. So, um, so I, I'm not sure that there's aluminum in, in the influenza vaccine, but there is thimerosal. There is mercury. But many okay. of the, the killed vaccines have aluminum in it. And the reason they do is because, see, the, the human body is not designed to incur uh, uh, the, an, an infectious substance through uh, a needle in your arm. That's not how the human body is designed. It's designed to recognize an infection be that comes in through your nose, through your throat, through your eyes, through your digestive system. And so it that's where the, the, the system is designed to recognize it and begin to defend against that infection. When you stick uh, these substances into somebody's arm, the body doesn't recognize there's something dangerous there. So they have to add the aluminum. The body recognizes aluminum is highly toxic and it immediately goes to the site and begins to try to mount a, a response to it. So they claim that they need aluminum for the vaccines to work and that's probably absolutely true based upon the design of these vaccines. I think injecting these substances into our arm is a failed fa a false uh, method of delivery, but uh, I think that what they're protecting in the vaccine paradigm is they have a method of delivery that allows them to basically impact the the uh, the purity uh, of every human being on the planet. That mm. we we could spend this whole program on on, on vaccines. Uh, I think probably what we want to do is spend a little bit of time talking about the legal challenge that we've launched in Canada as a way of trying to hold our governments accountable. Uh, for these uh, violations of our rights and freedoms. I'd like to, before we jump to that, Ted, I'd like to do one little thing for our listeners, because I do have this little interesting piece, just a, a thought-provoking. Um, 
I wanted to talk about just an, an example of a vaccine and how statistically this is manipulated. Um, back to John's thing. So I want to take measles as an example. I looked up the statistics on this. And in 1900, there were 13 deaths for each 100,000 of the U.S. population. By 1963, there was less than one death per 100,000. Um, so with the proper chart, that could be made to look really, really favorable for the vaccination. However, there's a little problem because the measles vaccine was not introduced until 1963. After it was introduced, there, there continued to have a decline in the, ma ma the amount of measles, but it wasn't significant and it wasn't accelerated. Um, and there was, there's nothing that's proving that the reduction came from the vaccine whatsoever. In fact, it was well on its way, obviously, from those numbers. So again, it's this thing, um, and there's the the theoretically, um, you know, what we have is we have improved living conditions. We have the invention of sewers at that time, you know, from that time period, um, improved living conditions, improved working conditions, things like that. So I just wanted to bring that to people's uh, thoughts uh, so they can kind of understand how the vaccine manufacturers are actually manipulating what they're even producing, saying that they're so effective when I can come up with example after example of ones that's like, this had nothing to do with this. This vaccine, these numbers were already in significant decline before the vaccines were even introduced and it happens over and over again. So that's it. You're yeah. absolutely right is that with, with the, the, most of the vaccines that were introduced during uh, you know, the 60s and 70s is that the, the, the mortality rate declined as, as much as 99% before the introduction of the vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, when they claim that vaccines have, you know, saved millions of lives, there's no evidence to prove that. Uh, if anything, they're manipulating history. Uh, I would suggest, and the evidence is pretty clear, is that closed sewage sanitation systems, better nutrition, uh, um, is more responsible, clean drinking water for the decline of mortality and the decline of infectious conditions than any vaccine. And I heard mentioned somebody talked about polio. Uh, you know, when you really examine the history of polio, it, it, it's an incredible fraud. That mm. my opinion is is what they did is they that was the time that they were using copious amounts of DDT, which is an uh, causes uh, its neurological condition. It, it destroys the nervous Absolutely, system. Absolutely, yeah. And and you know, initially when they had this paralytic condition that was showing up in the summer. Um, they, you know, they claim that it was some kind of a, 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 a coming from a mosquito. So they spread DDT throughout the country. They put it, sprayed kids playing fields. They put it in their lunch boxes. They put it in their pajamas. Mm -hmm. And if anything, the rate of paralysis increased. And to me, they recognized that the DDT was responsible for that. But the, the liability would have been huge. And so the polio vaccine really became a cover for the the DDT industry, and 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 then when you discover how dangerous the polio vaccine was, that it was contaminated with simian viruses, uh, specifically SV40, which causes cancer in humans, you realize that the uh, massive growth of cancer in, in in the world is one of the causes is likely the polio vaccine. Right, and you know I do want to get to your topic because the the legal thing is my favorite, but. 
I, I wanted to give our listeners one other example. Um, you know, when the, the decline of um, diseases like smallpox, you know, smallpox was definitely on the decline. It, um, in it for, for years, it, it you know, uh, only killed one or two people um, from the smallpox as it was declining. But when they introduced the vaccines, the vaccinated people, the people that got the smallpox vaccine went sky high. It was actually very, the vaccine itself was quite deadly whereas the amount of people dying from actual smallpox was almost non-existent. So it's just another example of it, how it, they manipulate this. Well, what they're masterful at is telling a story that makes these out to be a miracle of modern medicine. And when we simply accept the story because we trust them, we're, we're incredibly vulnerable to the manipulation and to having our kids harmed like my son. And what I've had to do is I had to realize I can't trust these people. I have to take responsibility for the decision. I have to do my own homework. I've had to become a scientist. I've had to become a doctor. I've had to become a researcher. Uh, I, I would go to the medical library at my university and, and copy hundreds and hundreds of research papers so I could understand what the science actually said. And what I learned is that what the science says and what the media or public health says, the science says, are two different things. That's right. We, we are being lied to on a massive scale. And it's hard, again, I said this before, it's hard to accept that, that loss of trust. It's like a death. And I've learned that the loss of dreams is actually more difficult for us than the loss of people. And the dream that our government is, is acting in our best interest, that our media is telling the truth, that the medical system is about our health and well-being, when we realize that those are lies, it hurts. Yes. It does, it does indeed. May I just cut in very quickly? I know that you guys want to go into the legal direction. I too want to hear all about that. And also, I very much want to hear about your activism in, in uh, and the lawsuit in Canada as well shortly. But uh, may I just bring up the, the subject of autism, the mm. correlation between autism and vaccination. Now, my numbers are a little bit rusty on this, but I believe, and, I, and I'm not entirely sure which numbers I should trust because, yeah, the source is all important. But I, I had the idea that there was something in the region of, I think going back to, again, please correct me, but I think going back to the 70s or something along those lines, uh, was it one, there was statistically one person with autism in 10,000, something along those lines. And today, after all the different cocktails of vaccinations that people are given, uh, we're into one person in 60 or one person in 50, I believe, has some level of autism. Is, is that knocking on the right door of the correct numbers? Or You're absolutely right. So prior to 1970, it was extremely rare. Uh, it would be unlikely for a physician to see a case in his, in his practice. You know, they use the number one in 10,000, but if you, what you come to realize is that when you examine those cases, you, you realize toxicity in those individuals or those children. Today, the numbers, uh, Timothy, are actually closer to one in 36, and in really? boys, it's, it's one in 28. That's, so, that's you not know, evolution, we, is it? We, we, we've <laughs> shut down the world because there's a pandemic 
because uh, you know uh, a, a relatively small percentage of human beings are so-called dying from COVID, and and we, 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 everybody on this call knows that those numbers are absolutely inflated, and most of those happen in our elderly population that probably would have died of influenza or pneumonia anyways. But that aside. Somehow, those uh, we don't have an epidemic when one in 36 children uh, are neurologically damaged and harmed uh, so that they possibly require long, uh, long-term care. Do you know what the cost is to support a child with autism and developmental disabilities? The estimated lifetime cost is $5 million per child. It's so, apart it's from the emotional cost. And, I, what I would see, uh, you know, because of my uh, journey with my son, I was embedded within the disability community for 30 years. I served as chair of boards of directors of many disability organizations. And the amount of stories that I heard uh, of, of parents who believed their child was normal until their vaccination was over and over again. But the amount of autism that I've seen happen in the last decade is shocking. Uh, it breaks my heart because I absolutely believe without a doubt that this is vaccine-related. The evidence is compelling and overwhelming, and if you watch the movie Vax that came out a, a few years ago where um, the, the CDC whistleblower came forward and said, we have been manipulating the data, we've been lying to you, uh, I'm sorry that we did what we did, but we absolutely have known for 15 years that vaccines cause autism. Absolutely. By the way, uh, for the listeners, there are once again a huge amount of uh, links in uh, if you click on the show banner perhaps you want to do it after the show because this is a riveting conversation in my opinion but vaxed is actually there vaxed one also there's uh, an intro for vax two and a number of other very very interesting and uh, i have to say very alarming uh, videos and links uh, so much information is put down to conspiracy theory people with tin foil hats and so on. But when I look at these links this evening, I just see that link after link after link after link is connected with a doctor, a respected person. And I think that uh, this is really time for this uh, vaccination delusion to come to an end. You're listening to the other side of the news. We're going to come up on a, a break and uh, we'll be back shortly. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back. We have Ted Koontz this evening as our special guest, and we've had an absolutely fantastic conversation. We've gone over some of the scientific information on vaccines. We've talked about some of the historical manipulation. We've talked about statistical manipulation uh, with John Francis. So we've got all kinds of things we're covering, but we're coming up. um, We're on the last half hour, and our guest has been an incredible activist uh, in Canada um, for the vaccine the movement, uh, our freedoms and rights in the legal front. And so we'd really like to get into that and, and start asking those kind of questions. But I do want to direct our listeners, uh, all of us, in, including myself, have put up links this week. I have, um, under Annetta's links, I have some fantastic videos. Um, uh, my item number one is a great overview um, and uh, introduction and pretty detailed uh, thing on vaccines. And my second one is with um, Dr. Judy and she has uh, all kinds of things about the scientific end of it. And it goes on, I have a third one, another doctor um, about vaccines. But also I have a great one about masks, my item number four, and then the overall, the overarching picture on number five. So I just wanted to point those out. All of us put a lot of effort into uh, finding um, data to back it up. So please take a look at that. And so we come back to our guest, uh, Ted, and he has done an amazing amount of work in Canada and led a huge movement. So I'm going to let him tell you all about that. Well, I, 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 I'm just one of many, so I, I don't want to take more credit than is due. Um, Vaccine Choice Canada has been around uh, in some form or another since 1982. It began in, in one of our provinces in Ontario when they introduced legislation in 1982 to make vaccines mandatory for public school attendance. So that was the first province in Canada to do so. And the initial legislation uh, did not permit for any exemptions um, uh, other than a medical exemption. And so a group of uh, concerned parents uh, got together, they lobbied the government for two years and in 1984 were successful in having the government introduce uh, exemptions for personal choice, for, uh, conscious choice and for religion, which has stood to, to date. Um, and then a second province, New Brunswick, also introduced uh, mandatory vaccinations with exemptions. And so we have lived with those conditions uh, for more than 30 years. But for the most part, um, those that choose not to vaccinate 
uh, are able not to vaccinate because the truth is all in Canada, all vaccines are voluntary. Um, the problem is the public health won't tell you that and the media won't tell you that. They uh, very intentionally mislabel, uh, use, use the language of mandatory when it's not mandatory. What's mandatory, at least in Canada, is an administrative requirement that you either vaccinate or you submit a piece of paper that says uh, you're, you're exempting for these, for these following reasons. Uh, what happened a couple of years ago was Ontario decided that those measures weren't strong enough, uh, and so they introduced what they called mandatory education sessions for those parents who didn't fully vaccinate. So even if you abstain from one vaccine on the schedule, you were required to attend a, a mandatory education session to get your mind right. Um, the other thing they introduced was uh, uh, that you were forced to sign an affidavit, which our lawyer would call compelled speech. And in that statement that you were required to sign, it says that you, you are knowingly putting your child and other children at risk. And we felt like that had gone too far, that it was time that we stood up to the Ontario government. And so last October, we launched a legal challenge. We hired a, a constitutional lawyer by the name of Rocco Gawadi. And if you haven't had him on your program, I would definitely encourage you to have him. He's an incredibly knowledgeable uh, uh, man. He's an incredible warrior. We are so fortunate to have him. And so... Uh, we, we stood before our government uh, building last October and, uh, and we declared that it was time to hold them accountable for their violations of our rights and freedoms. Uh, and one of the statements that I love Rocco said during that time, and it, it, the, the first video that's linked under my name is called uh, Call to Action and it's about a two minute, 40 second video. I would encourage your, your listeners to watch it because to me, in two minutes and 40 seconds, you really get a powerful understanding of what we've done. But we, we declared that the right to choose does not belong to the state. It belongs to the parents. And that we were holding the government accountable for their, uh, for their medical tyranny, and we were forcing them uh, into an evidence-based discussion in a court of law. So that was filed last October. Uh, we are in the process. Uh, they filed a statement of defense, which was, uh, I thought, embarrassing. It basically said vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines save lives. Vaccines are a miracle of modern medicine, and everybody should vaccinate. Uh, those kinds of opinions uh, won't stand up in a court of law. We're going to demand evidence, and we've actually produced uh, a five-page document of all the evidence we're asking them to provide including uh, the, the evidence of safety of every vaccine ingredient, every combination of vaccine ingredient, vaccinated versus unvaccinated studies, long-term studies, uh, you name it, we're asking for evidence of that. So I would su suspect that the government is, uh, is uh, reeling from that because uh, those of us who have done our homework know that they don't have the evidence to support it. Uh, and then when this uh, COVID uh, insanity began to present itself last February and March, and we started to see these incredible violations of our rights and freedoms with social distancing, stay-at-home orders, uh, now the masking orders, uh, shutdown of, of businesses, uh, loss of livelihoods, uh, we were inundated with people saying somebody has to do something, somebody has to hold the government accountable. 
And the group of parents that are uh, the board of directors of the Vaccine Choice Canada kind of looked at each other and said, well, I, I don't know that this is our mandate. Our mandate is around uh, vaccinations, and, and we certainly are concerned that a COVID vaccine could be, and the talk is that it would become mandatory. But, you know, these other things is, is kind of outside of our scope of what we saw as our mandate. But when we didn't see anybody else standing up, we felt we had to do it. And so uh, we hired the same lawyer, Rocco Gladi, and uh, on July the 6th, we uh, filed a 190-page statement of claim against the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Toronto, uh, about a half a dozen chief medical officers, and the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, which is our national uh, broadcaster. And... Uh, uh, we uh, we're going to uh, demand the same um, uh, evidence-based discussion in a court of law. We're going to hold them accountable to the measures. We're going to ask for the science to support it. Uh, we uh, tried to collect that information before we went to court. I, I drafted documents that were sent to the Canadian government, to our chief medical officer, asking for the evidence to support the measures that they were taking, and they basically ignored us. So. We felt we had no choice but to go to court. And so I'm actually really looking forward to this because, again, I don't know that they have the evidence to substantiate their positions. Uh, I believe that they will try to have us dismissed, but we will not be deterred. We will keep pushing. Um, so we're, we're in interesting times. So, Ted, I'm, I hear you saying about holding the government accountable. Does that mean that if the courts were to rule in your favor on either the vaccine or the COVID odds measures, yeah, that they could actually be financially liable for the destruction that they've caused? Would this open the door for lawsuits against the government? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not the lawyer here, but I, uh, we have not asked for financial compensation from the government in this statement of claim. We did ask the, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation for financial compensation. We're suing them for uh, $1 million for under one category and $10 million under another, another category. I don't have the details here. But the, the direction that we got from our lawyers that if we were to ask the government for financial compensation, it, 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 it that provides them with a, a different uh, grace period to respond, that they're, they need to have six months notice that they're being sued financially. And we felt, uh, and you don't need that requirement if you're not suing them financially. What we wanted uh, was relief from those measures. We wanted all of those measures to, to cease and desist. Uh, so uh, we felt we needed to go ahead immediately and send a strong message that we were holding them accountable. I would suggest that uh, when we win this case, that it will open up uh, for uh, liability suits that uh, would be worth, I think, uh, billions, if not trillions of dollars uh, when it's all said and done. Um, we don't expect this will be an easy battle. Our lawyer has advised us that likely there will be three court cases that uh, we'll need to go through. This filing took place in what's called the Superior Court of Ontario. Uh, he has advised us that win or lose, the loser will appeal to the Supreme Court of Ontario and the loser will appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we don't expect um, quick relief. Um, what we more hope for is that we send a strong message that they will be held accountable and that um, 
uh, were demanding evidence to support their position. We are uh, in the process, probably within the next week to 10 days, to launch an emergency injunction against the mandatory masking that's happening in the province of Ontario. And, um, and now they're requiring that in our school system for children uh, over, uh, I think, age 12. So uh, we expect that to be heard imminently. Uh, well, we'll file it, and then we're looking for an emergency hearing before the courts uh, to, to attend to that matter. So that's, those are the actions that we've taken to date. What I can tell you that when we developed the statement of claim, uh, we wrestled with uh, what, what we would argue in terms of what's happening. And, you know, we can look at, at an individual country like the United States or Canada and, and, and say, you know, well, you know, these measures are, uh, are not warranted. Uh, they're, you know, they, they've overreacted, but there's something happening globally here, as we all know. And the concern was if we didn't speak to the global agenda, they would simply dismiss us saying, well, every other country is doing this, it must be the right thing to do. So we felt we had to talk about the global agenda. We talk about, uh, you know, Event 21, uh, with, uh, we talk about Bill Gates, we talk about uh, a lot of these things. And, uh, the risk was is that you know that makes us uh, vulnerable to being attacked as conspiracy theorists. What our lawyer has said is that conspiracy is a, a, a criminal matter. Uh, there is a, 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 a crime called conspiracy. And if you look at our statement of claim, we have more than 245 references. We try to reference every statement we make and what he what our lawyer says is that there's no theory in our statement of claim it is conspiracy fact and we support it with facts and so um, it, it should be an interesting battle I think it's fantastic news I, I wish that every country would follow suit seriously I mean the, something does have to be done and, and we need that focus and we need to take these guys on uh, in, in multiple positions. I mean, you just look at New Zealand's been shut down because four people had yeah. a runny nose. Uh, it, it's maybe I'm being slightly pedantic there, but it is ridiculous. This whole thing is ridiculous. And yet it continues. The momentum continues. But I will say that the I think as more and more people become aware of what's really happening here it, the measures seem to be becoming more and more strict and therefore i think it's it's a, a level of it's a desperate level of of uh, locking us down trying to lock us down because this the the, the illusion is is broken uh, well, I, I would agree with you is that the the, the illusion is is, is uh is evaporating. Uh, you know, th this is like the Wizard of Oz, and, and we've started to pull back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. Uh, more and more people see that the emperor has no clothes. And, you know, if we simply stayed with uh, mortality numbers, you know, we, we would have been past this by now because there isn't enough there to, to evoke the fear. To me, the masking was, was a brilliant strategy on their part to, to maintain and even enhance the fear. Uh, the masking is really a psychological tool. It's it's psychological warfare that's going on, and and they've implemented it because uh, it, it works. It keeps people afraid. Uh, in the absence of uh, of any clear evidence that we we have a, a medical emergency, 
uh, all of these masks, when you go into you know, your, your Walmart or your Costco, uh, it says to you, well, there must be something because look at all these people wearing masks. It's also a form of muzzling. Uh, our, our lawyer is very clear that uh, masking was a tool that was used uh, during the time of slavery to uh, send a very strong message to the slave that he was not to speak and, and he was under the control of the master. And so there's a history of masking uh, as part of enslavement, and, and I think that's exactly what we're experiencing now. It's, this is a form of enslavement. It's a form of mass control of humanity uh, that, you know, in some ways the virus is only part of a much larger agenda, in my view. Um, but Absolutely. It's, 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 it's what is capturing us. You know, here we're having these battles over whether to mask or not or whether... Uh, you know, a cloth mask can, can stop uh, droplets, which, which, you know, magically protect people. When, and, and we're not talking about these incredible violations, the deceptions, the distortions, the, 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 the complete destruction of our, of our economy globally, the loss of livelihoods, the despair, the level of suicides. I mean, all of those things that our media ought to be talking about. Instead, what they're doing is they're shaming people. Um, Indeed. Ted, may, may I, because uh, I'm just conscious that, as ever, we're, we're running out of time and we have so many things to talk about. I think we could almost uh, do the same again next week if you're available. But uh, <laughs> the um, one of the questions I have, have in my mind is concerning the 140-something vaccinations which are in, in trials. One, I think, has been accepted for the Chinese army one or two more being in the, the last sort of stage four of trials, I think human trials and so on. But one of the things that really caught my eye is, well, actually a number of things, but one of them is the first trials, I believe I saw on television uh, some some weeks ago, when the vaccination was being administered, the needle was basically, it had three three points. And one I think was for the actual disgusting cocktail itself. And the other two were like uh, electrodes. Is do you know any more about this? Is this like some sort of activation or, or something new? Tim, Tim I, I've not heard that, so that's uh, new information for me. I, I'll go and, and uh, do some research or connect with my colleagues. So I haven't heard that. Um, okay. That, well, that, that that's okay. I mean, again, I'm I'm I. Of course, we can speculate, but uh, given that we have a short amount of time and, and we have your you know, huge wealth knowledge. Let me let me move on, move on to another point. Perhaps we can come back to that another time. But the, the other thing which uh, really caught my eye is the some people are saying that the COVID vaccination is possibly going to change the RNA or DNA of our body, like not just as a temporary measure, but actually for for the rest of our lives and perhaps our children as well. We, we've done a lot of research and uncovered things that, um, you know, the Gates Foundation has been sort of sponsoring all the way around the world, including sort of male and female sterilization yeah. additives for vaccines and so on. But going back to the RNA DNA altering part, is there anything you can add, add to that? That's absolutely true, that that's some of the vaccines are experimenting with technology that we have never used before. It, it includes uh, injecting RNA into the body and, and getting the body to, to make up, uh, replicate that RNA. 
So really, we are talking about changing the genetic structure. We're altering it. Uh, I, I would suggest not only is this a poisoning using chemicals like aluminum and mercury uh, and, uh, and other toxins, but we're actually changing the genetic makeup of the body. Uh, and the fact that somehow this uh, mass experimentation is allowed to, to even be contemplated, I find shocking. I, I can't understand how this would meet any requirements for, for ethics. Uh, but the other thing is, is, is what's happening with uh, this COVID vaccine. They've been trying to make a vaccine for coronavirus for more than 20 years. And they haven't been successful because uh, something uh, peculiar happens when they develop a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, when they inject it into animals, the animals actually develop antibodies. But when they, the animal then is exposed to the, to the live wild virus, uh, it, it causes what's called pathogenic priming or disease enhancement, where it actually causes the immune system to overreact in, in a way that actually kills the animal. And, and what they say is that it's, it's not the virus that's killing, it's the body's immune response uh, th that's out of control that people are dying from. The, the way they're solving this with, with uh, these trials is that they've uh, been given permission to bypass uh, animal studies, which, I, again, I think is monstrously unethical, immoral, criminal, uh, but that's, that's what's happening here. So we're using technology we've never used before. Uh, there's, there's one vaccine that I read about that uh, it purports that uh, you only have to uh, vaccinate a small number of people and then it will spread like a virus to the rest of the people. Uh, to me, that completely violates any sense of informed consent. So obviously they, they don't care. They're not interested in people consenting, uh, which tells me that their agenda really is global mass vaccination, whether you like it or not. Um, and uh, I suspect, you know, our government uh, keeps saying that they won't make it mandatory. Uh, and that might be true to the letter, but what they'll do is they'll create enough uh, challenges that, that you'll be forced to vaccinate because you can't travel, you can't work, you can't go to the grocery store. So, you know, it, it's just a mincing of words to say it's not mandatory. People ask me if I think that they'll have uh, a vaccine and whether it will be mandated. And my answer to both of those is yes. Uh, I, I don't for a minute think that they'll have a safe and effective vaccine, uh, but they will have a vaccine. There's too much political investment in this, and there's far too much financial investment for them not to produce a vaccine that they will then begin to impose on the population. And because of a, a larger agenda here, which is really what I call enslavement and, and really denying our sovereignty as citizens uh, and our right to choice, that vaccine will be imposed. Uh, I also uh, think there's every reason to believe that uh, the technology that they're developing on microchipping, nanochipping uh, will, will be implanted. And again, what I said a few minutes ago is I believe what they're preserving when they defend vaccines is they're de defending a, a delivery system which allows them to have access to every human body on the planet. Well, that's exactly what I was um wondering when i talked about this injection with a, a, th a three uh three prong uh system with the two electrodes that sounds to me like uh the injection is, is is going into your arm and then the two electrodes are there to activate 
something like a like a nano chip, for example. Wouldn't that be like the perfect sort of on switch? I'm just wildly speculating, but well, uh, I, why not? I think there's reason to believe that there's enough information out there to say that that technology has advanced. Uh, Gates has bragged about the kind of nanotechnology that he's behind. Uh, and I, I don't trust these people, so I have no reason to think that they're acting in our best interest. Um, well, Ted, yeah. I was just going to say that... It, it sounds like you know you're 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 expecting a mandatory vaccine to come through, but at the other the other end of the day, surely we we have the right to reject something being forcibly, you know, plunged into our arm and injected into us. So, is there nothing we can do? Like, can we not sort of read demand to have the ingredients of what what is going to be injected into us? Can we not? You know, the, forbid people to do it, object to the mercury, the chemicals, the, uh, you know, the toxic things, the, the terrible things that I've read that are in many, many vaccines. Can we not just sort of make a stand that that's not going in my body? I mean, isn't that our sovereign right? Well, I, I think we, Timothy, I, I think we absolutely have to do that. But we have to do that uh, with enough numbers that we, we have uh, a force. But I intend to resist this with every ounce of my body uh, to the end because, and, and what I say is one of the, the articles that I included in, in my list of things was an article I wrote a couple of weeks ago that says, am I being selfish? Uh, and I said, absolutely, but I, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's children. I see the loss of rights and freedoms. I can, I, I've lived long enough to know what's happening here, and I cannot stand back and simply comply. If anything, the easiest thing for me to do would be to just roll up my sleeve or to put on a mask. But I'm going to resist those measures with everything that I have, uh, emotionally, psychologically, physically, legally, uh, because I cannot allow those our rights and freedoms to be taken from us. But w w we have to stand up for them. And this is where I say that we have to become adults. We have to stand up for our rights and freedoms. We, we can't ask for them. We have to demand that they be honored and respected and, and resist. And so to me, the masking is part of the strategy of, you know, you know what our lawyer calls, or David Icke calls, the, the totalitarian tiptoe. We just keep encroaching on you, and, and it's just a little bit worse than it was yesterday. And most people don't see it, but we, we see it. And that's why this program and the work that you guys are doing is so important. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we, we are just collecting information, researching, and then sharing it to a, a wider audience. I mean, it, it's that, that's it's as simple as it is. And everybody, each one of our listeners, can also employ the same principle. And that, that's, that's how we get educated. I think one of the, the difficult parts is, or challenging parts, is to bring this information to people who don't think they want to hear it. But uh, that's that's something which we're also working on, and I understand from your books that you already have had some success in. So I, I look forward to looking at your books and uh, to reading them as soon as I can. And we're well, coming up on the close here. So I want to thank you so much for inspiring us by your actions, and I hope that countries around the world, including ours in America... <laughs> will follow suit very powerful work that you're doing for all of us noble work 
Well, and that's our hope too, is that what we've done is that we've de delivered a, a, an idea, a strategy of standing up courageously and risking being uh, dismissed. But uh, it's important that we, we, we take a stand here and saying we will not tolerate this. Thank you so much. We wish you a good night. Good morning. This is The Other Side of News. And thank you for supporting us.